I'm Tyreek. And I am Alexander Young. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Tyreek, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Sure. I'm Tyreek. I make uh, video games, and I'm working on a game called Catacomb Kids, which is currently available on Steam and itch.io in early access. And I also put out an album last year. You can find that if you go to errorwithanf.com or on it's it's on Bandcamp, but just F R R O R. That's the name that I I apparently am releasing music under whenever I do that. So you're also making a game where a muscular dude fights a green pig in a tunnel. Yes, I'm also working on on UFO Fifty, which is a collection of fifty games uh, from me and Derek Yu, who made Spelunky, and John Perry, and a bunch of other cool game dev people. Uh, that's being worked on. It is coming along. No release date yet, but it's happening. It's happening, people. <laughs> Do I have anything else? I think that's it for now. I mean, I'm working on a lot of a lot of other stuff, but there's no, nothing quite in the pluggable range yet. That's fair. Uh, and uh, Alexander, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Hi, um, uh, I'm Alexander. I'm still nickname agnostic uh, between Alex and Xander. That's why I call you Alexander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was an experiment that's kind of gone wrong at this point. But most people, most people that you know, call me Xander. But most people call me Alex now. Um, I still remain a uh, mathematics professor. Um, and my work still remains very much below the hood for a very small collection of people, unfortunately. I don't have anything I made that um, I could plug. As far as plugging things go, though, I have the latest podcast I've been chowing down on was, is uh, The History of Byzantium by uh, Robin Pearson. He's got, a, um, he's got a very smooth voice, and it's, it's a pretty interesting topic. I don't know. I like, uh, I like history stuff, history podcasts. I like niche things. And um, I started this realizing, hey, I don't really know much about this empire that was around for a thousand years and was actually really important in its day. Me either. I could also listen to this show. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I'm going to check that out. It's pretty nuts what happened. It's pretty nuts what we know. And it's also pretty nuts what we don't know. There's a lot of weird mysteries. That covers all the bases, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it also has to be pretty nuts what didn't happen. That, I mean, yeah, actually, that's kind of the, the tragedy of... There's always something crazier that could have happened, right? Right. Well, there's always more things that didn't happen than happened, right? Oh, thank goodness. Like, yeah, I guess if you <laughs> average it out, it might be a fair competition. If you read an average book out of all the books that don't exist, it's a, it's a bunch of nonsense. It's not yeah, interesting. not... <laughs> right. Just a... Uh, was it Library of Babel type just strings of nonsense I'm, I'm trying to think of how you would average two books and all i can think of is that you would like <laughs> crossfade the pages together <laughs> so well, i was thinking i was thinking maybe you would like make a markov chain and feed it the input of both books or something oh sure. i like that and yeah yeah that would yeah. certainly be more interesting uh so if you if you <laughs> literally overlaid the images of the pages of all books that don't exist together it would just be a black page a big waste of ink. Oh man! Yeah. What if, so? What if you what if you overlaid the pages of two books and oh no, that wouldn't make sense. What if you overlaid the pages of three books and wherever like where, wherever characters overlapped, you took the most common character between the books? I don't know where I'm going with this. Do you remember the the brief meme? I guess that was Garfield minus Garfield. Oh yeah. Yes. There was kind of a, I guess, sort of mimetic spinoff called the square root of negative Garfield that just did a lot of basically toying with the whole foundational idea of the comic and did things like one of the strips was, I believe it was just the exactly what you said, like the average, oh wow you know, color information wise of all the strips where you can clearly see, you know, Garfield usually stands on this side. John usually stands here. The text is formatted in line. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds neat. I'm also, I'm also reminded, um, I have a course in numerical analysis, which uh, is a very, I think I've mentioned it before in this uh, very strange math class. And uh, I have my students do project assignments, um, which I hope they find fun. And one of them is to create your own compression algorithm for something. Yeah. And uh, one of them made a lossy compression for plain text 
something that really doesn't need and shouldn't have lossy compression. But uh-huh. if you had to and you did, what would it look like? What would a JPEG artifact as letters be? I was I was pretty happy to receive this one. <laughs> <laughs> what what did it look like? It looked like a just creeping corrosion in the the words. I'm trying to remember the name of the photocopier, but there was a photocopier that used lossy compression on the images that it copied. Or maybe it was a scanner. Anyway, there was actually like cases of the – the way it worked was that it would um, divide the image into blocks and then it would merge blocks that were very similar. It would store them all as the same symbol, which usually uh-huh. which is usually is like, okay, all the A's look the same. So, we'll use the same image of an A for oh. all the A's and that's – it'll store the image uh, more be- – with better compression. But what this also meant was that – if uh, two numbers looked like there was a, a number that wasn't perfectly printed and there was a little bit of the ink missing here and it looks like a different number, it would actually change the number to a different number. Oh, wow. It wouldn't look like, oh, here's a four, but it was misprinted. So, like some of the ink is missing. It would actually just look straight up like a one. So, it actually oh. changed numbers in financial documents. That's fascinating. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's like the most information dense thing you can change. Yeah. <laughs> I remember there was a uh, there was an XKCD that was basically went through really like old compiled documents assembling dates to see which dates were referenced the most and the 11th of every month except September was always less commonly referenced than the others and it was a total mystery why until someone pointed out it was just a problem with scanning the number 11. Huh. Oh wow. Like it was a OCR problem? It's something like that. It just appeared as a different number or didn't didn't go through but just ll mm-hmm. right that's, that, that is that is fascinating beware the lls of march <laughs> <laughs> beware the lls of cool j <laughs> i hate this cool j weather <laughs> when is it gonna be summer already did you know that ll cool j stands for ladies love ll cool j oh. that that can't be true. That would be LLLL Cool J. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. It's a, I made that up. <laughs> it's like GNL. GNL is not LL Cool J. Right. <laughs> that wasn't a topic. <laughs> no, we, we, we haven't no. started one yet. Come to th- <laughs> Are we ready to start a topic? It sure, yeah. sure felt like a topic. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alexander. Your topic is, the year was 1998, and choosing a name with numbers in it was a completely normal thing to do. So, I'm old enough to remember this. Jim, I assume that you remember this? Um, like, when you can't pick your, your real name user as a username because it's taken? Even if you can, you wouldn't. Because oh, that's I- what we did in those days. That was the style at the time. You'd always put a number at the end. And sometimes it was your birth year. Sometimes right. it wasn't. Sometimes it was 666 because we were, you know, all that edgy. If you didn't think far enough ahead, it would be your age. 420. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. And this was not just screen names too. There was a whole company of band names that were following this style, even though they didn't really need to. Based on Turk 182. Yeah, there was, I mean... (laughs) That's a movie. It's You got Blink-182. I don't... You got got Eve 6. You have Sum 41. Yeah. Why did they do that? Eve 6 was based on an X-Files episode. So when I I read this topic, I thought you meant like a name for children, like when you're naming your child. You know... Like it's totally normal and fine (laughs) to just put numbers in that. And I was like, I don't remember this. I don't know that I've met anybody who... Who lived through this era. I hadn't heard of that, but I wouldn't be shocked if anyone tried. Well, no, actually, mm. that wouldn't make sense because the people doing all this were teenagers and youngsters. It wasn't the people actually having kids bestowing these names. But but now that the teenagers or youngsters are having kids, we're still not putting numbers in the names. So well, it's it's not in style anymore. Do you want to do you want to be like I don't want to be like Zeno seven forty six. I'll just put it there. I don't want to. I don't want to emulate that person. That person didn't know very much about anything mature. That's fair. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't think I ever actually had like a username with a number well, in it. Four Bit Friday. I think I always deliberately. Well, that doesn't count. That's the word for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were, you tried to name yourself Bit Friday, but it was taken. So you tried <laughs> One Bit Friday. 
No, I tried. I tried Bit Friday four right. <laughs> before I landed on four Bit Friday. Then you tried four bits at Fridays. <laughs> TGI four bit Friday. No, I don't know. I feel. I feel like whenever I see someone with a number in their like screen name or username or whatever, I feel like they've failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the reason I thought of this, my original thought was I remembered I had a friend who, as a matter of principle, refused to do this. Yeah. And the fact that that mm. could be a principle raises more questions. <laughs> it's all social signaling, right? It's uh, yeah. it's the first thing people see about you. And there's a certain, you know, population of people who are doing this. And if you don't want to look like those people, yep. then as a matter of principle, you won't do this. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a matter of social principle. But the principle is that like, if you don't have a number in your name, then it kind of indicates that you were either early enough or are unique enough right. to have not yep. acquired it. Like, yeah. like Both of which are make you cool. Yeah, both of which make you cool. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I you know, I got the original version of this name before anybody else did. So I'm I'm the original I am the, I embody the original like character that this name refers to and everybody else that has like numbers or other some other signifier in their name is not as good as as me because they're not the original. They couldn't they couldn't get this, you know? Yeah. But what this topic is positing, and I actually wasn't aware of this phenomenon, is that it actually was cool to look like you weren't mm. the first among certain oh, right, circles. Right. It's like how uh, on Instagram, I don't know if this is, you know, I don't know if this was ever true. I just saw an article about it once. On Instagram, the new thing for the kids to do is to pretend you have sponsors so you like hold up a product and you thank your sponsors, but they didn't actually sponsor you. That's weird. Yeah, I know, right? Oh man, that makes me uncomfortable for some I, reason. I, I probably would have done that if I were a kid. I would have been that kind of kid. You know what? That actually, now that I now that I think about it for five seconds, that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. All, all all your idols are influencers. Yeah, exactly. Mm. There's probably a reason for all their actions. Yeah. Yeah. Even if I can't think of it. I feel like there was a kind of feeling to the whole number letter username because the internet was a new place for us and we were feeling really like we were feeling really cybery just chatting with our <laughs> friends through AOL Instant Messenger I think we were people were still using the phrase information superhighway and not realizing how fucking ridiculous they sounded yeah possibly a proto example of this is uh it was a character in Snow Crash whose name was David but the middle instead of a v was a 5 and i think it's just kind of that feel of yeah, we're all numbers and letters now. We're all just bits and bytes and what have you on the information superhighway. I feel like they missed the boat by not making it be a 7, because the 7 at least looks like a V. Yeah, there's no real translation between V and 5 that I can think of. Oh, maybe he was the 5th. Well, I guess 5, five has a Roman V in Roman numerals. Oh, oh, wow. shit. I, okay, you solved it. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean maybe. That's, maybe that's... he was the 5th of his name. <laughs> yeah. Please, DeForid was my father. <laughs> Call me DeFivid. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking this is like the same the same era in which names also had like XX name XX or whatever that sort of thing. Oh was that, yeah. Was yeah, that sort of the same sort of thing. Yeah. So like, I guess I'm kind of imagining that like in this sort of mindset and and you know cultural moment, uh, the actual like vis visual aesthetics of your name as it as it's presented are super important. I feel like maybe much more so than now. Maybe nowadays people are more concerned with like the actual meaning and of, of the words they, they choose in their names, that sort of thing. Like when they do care and aren't just picking something random. I feel like maybe back then it was like, oh, this is going to be the thing that people are going to see. And there's like some aesthetic consideration to, to put into it. Yeah, and the numbers maybe were were also a part of that aesthetic consideration. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to like at least to the Apple II, which uh, instead of spelling two with a numeral two or T W O or I I, it used uh, close bracket open bracket because it oh. kind of resembles the serifed two eyes of a Roman numeral. Hmm. There is kind of a logic to the. Bracing the idea of visually decorating your name. Yeah. Because it's what yeah, people it see sense. when they first see you online. Yep. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, I wonder if that started fading away once, like, image avatars sort of became the norm. 
And so you had another space to represent yourself visually online as opposed to just a name. I think it's like a gas and your creativity expands to fill its container. <laughs> I think it's probably just viewed as tacky now. Because, I mean, you can decorate your name, but you could also you could also put in like MIDI and custom animating backgrounds on your live journal. And it turned out not to be such a hot idea. Yeah. What do people do now? On Twitter, they change their name to be a creepy version of it for Halloween. <laughs> well, so another another thing about this is that uh, on Twitter, you know how you used to sign up for Twitter and you would pick your username and then you would pick your name. Your name didn't have to be unique, but your username did. Nowadays, you don't pick your username. They just assign you – you type in your name and they assign you a username based on that and, and adding a bunch of numbers to the end. If you know where to go, you can go in there and change your username to something custom. But I think most new users don't because they don't know that that's a thing and they just see themselves writing as their real name or their, their the name they typed in. Hmm. Well, actually, now that I think about it, um, I just realized I've got a little data here because um, I have a couple classes that have semi-official discords uh, run by my students and they all get to choose their screen names. And I'm just looking through the list now and yeah, not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of numbers I can see. Yeah, what what do they do instead? It's hard to summarize, really. A lot of two words joined together. Yeah, I'm looking through the yeah. Catacomb Kids Discord users, and yeah, there's a lot of just like concatenated uh, phrases and two words and that sort of thing. Camel case, Pascal case, or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I'm scrolling down the tweet deck column of people who mentioned frog fractions and i'm seeing a lot of like so here's one person with like card suit emojis around their name and then it's mm -hmm. a, and then after that it says hyphen chocolate <laughs> yeah i think we've we've kind of delved into the more absurd <laughs> styles here yeah i think that's a lot more common now is just to be just something really random and here's one that's their name and then uh syringe emoji and then a fraction and then the fast forward button and then the abbreviation of a con. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say is I feel like uh first of all I feel like names at least the names that people that other people see not necessarily like your own personal like login and that sort of thing but the names that you are able to display for other people to interact with are a lot more malleable now or you can just kind of change them on a whim. And yeah. so I feel like a lot of people kind of change them to suit whatever the situation sort of identity signifiers for like, you know, uh, uh, trans flags and, and those sorts of things and having having those sorts of things like as a part of their name or like after their name being like, hey, here's my name. And then here's a bunch of symbols and, you know, information that gives like a very quick rundown of either who I am or what's currently going on in my life. Yeah. Either that or just like low random. Technology has come a long way since uh, you had to dial an operator and verbally tell them which uh, house you wanted to call. Right. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yep. I can dig it. Tariq, your topic is how do you overcome the inertia of old familiar tools when trying to learn new ways to do the same thing? Yeah. So I've um, started messing around with um, Godot recently. And uh, uh, last December, I did the first two and a half days of uh advent of coding uh which was fun oh you did that in in godot no no i did that in python oh okay okay so like i'm just trying to expand my sort of knowledge base of of tools and coding and game dev you know like the things i can use but it's it's kind of tough because i don't know i've just been using game maker for so long and mm -hmm. i'm so familiar with it that when like basically anything i do in any other program that i've used so far I've just been like, oh man, I could, I could just do this so much faster if I was using Game Maker. <laughs> and I like, I definitely understand Game Maker has drawbacks, and other things have, you know, have drawbacks too. But they also have their own, you know, unique things that they're good at. Um, but I'm just like, I feel like there's just like still this mental barrier whenever I'm trying to learn some other tool that's just like, oh, this would be so much easier if I was using the program that I always use and and know how. Right. It works. By inertia, do you mean it's you? You feel slow, or do you feel unmotivated, or do you just like, yeah? What, what... It's kind of it's kind of it's kind of like a slow to keep with the metaphor, like like the inertia of like just 
moving of, of both beginning to move and also of pulling away from from uh the old tools that i've been moving with for so long it's like okay i'm headed in this direction at this velocity and now i have to like change direction and it's hard because i keep one rolling it i keep i just keep wanting to roll in the same direction with the same tried and true stuff and i don't know mm. jim you've changed tools you've like used various tools and stuff is this something you've experienced yeah i i had a lot of growing pains going from flash to unity and honestly like so one of the reasons that i loved flash so much was that it actually fit my workflow really well and this is um, when i talk about my workflow i'm talking about like what i did in dos in the late 90s like Mm. um in c when i was working when when i was like doing demo scene stuff and I, I think a lot of it is that it was just – it's software rendered and it uses that kind of pipeline. But like Flash really fit my uh, – I, I fell into it really neatly because it really fit my – the way I wanted to work and wanted to think about how to draw things on the screen. When I transitioned into Unity, which was a necessity for several reasons, one of which was that Flash was going away. Right. It was – there were a lot of growing pains and I, I found myself – I did not want to do things the way Unity wanted me to do, and I fought it tooth and nail. I ended up doing, yeah. I ended up doing a bunch of stuff that it was extremely suboptimal, and I finally found. I wouldn't even call it a compromise. I finally found a good way to do what I wanted to do inside of Unity, and I just started sticking with that. and And so, like, if you look at the source code to Glitterman Grove, like every every mini game has a different way to draw things on the screen. <laughs> because I was trying to fucking hmm. figure it out, you know? Um, <laughs> and then if you look at the source code to the Hat DLC or or to the Frog Fractions Remaster, everything uses the same graphics pipeline because I found like, oh, this is the one that worked. I'll just use that. Right. Arguably, that was like it took me three years to figure out how to draw things on the screen in Unity. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and hmm. so uh, what I would recommend probably is that's not the way to do it. Uh, probably what you want to do is um, learn to use the tool the way it's intended to be used because then you can make a fair assessment of whether it's a good tool on its own terms instead of I, – I feel like I'm not a huge fan of Unity, but I don't know if that's fair or not right. <laughs> because I do so many things that are counter to, to the way that it wants me to work. Right. I see. I kind of have a counter voice here in that I think I have the opposite problem. In that when I see a new tool, I basically shelve everything and try to start over. I don't know. Like, for me, it is – there's motivation in itself to learning a new tool to the detriment sometimes of actually getting things done. Like, yeah. oh, wait a minute. This The actual best practice would have been to write everything like this. Guess I got to go rewrite it. Yeah, there's a right. jo- there's a joy in in learning a new tool. Yeah, the pr- pretty much the only thing I've done in Unity that was for real finished and released is the mini game that I contributed to Frog Fractions too. Um, yeah, so I did that. But before that, the game was written in JavaScript. Um, that's the version I'd sent to you beforehand. And before that, I was trying to write it in Android because. I thought that was the way of the future, and I got very little done. <laughs> so that's that's been in three completely different versions, rewritten completely different. Well, I'll time. tell you, like making a phone app and and making a JavaScript version, like these are both pretty sensible approaches to getting a game in front of people. Like because people play games on their phone and people play games on the web. That's like yeah, those are two like good platforms to target when you're trying to make a game. Just never did the thought occur to me to reuse something I had previously written. Right. There's a satisfaction to like writing it the good way, writing it the efficient way instead of just like importing code from one thing into another. But you don't always do something for your own personal satisfaction. <laughs> right. My my latest projects have all been I had to basically had to learn Perl from the ground up over the last couple of years. Not not something I would recommend. Like I would no, say, no, no, it isn't. Perl is a dead end of a language, and it yeah. is a moon language. It is, <laughs> yeah. I did it because I had to. All right, fair enough. Yeah, uh, Derek, what um, what language are you working in in Godot? Uh, the GD script. 
Interesting. Uh, is what I've what I've started with. Yeah. So because it's similar to uh, Game Maker, or well, no, I just use it because it's what the documentation recommends, and everyone I talk to mm-hmm. who uses Godot is like, you should GDScript because that's kind of what oh, it's a custom, it's a custom language for the for Godot. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it resembles uh, Python in its like syntax and structure and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. But yeah, it's it's sort of its own custom scripting thing. I guess you you have a, you have a really good point about tr- approaching it the way that it wants to be approached, as opposed to the way like as opposed to trying to force it to fit my conception of of you know the way I want things to work. Having you know worked with Game Maker and like try like every time ta- like that's the thing is like every time I sit down I like try and do it and I'm like okay, but how can I make this more familiar to me? Right. <laughs> Instead of being like okay, well, what does this actually want me to use this for? And and how does it, how how do how should I structure this in a way that will be conducive within this tool set as opposed to within the framework that I'm used to? That's 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 helpful. That's helpful advice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, because like I feel like that's the thing. This thing is like every time I sit down, I'm like, ah, either either I wish I could use Game Maker or I wish I could just make this more like Game Maker. And I feel like maybe the former, I won't actually get anywhere, and the latter will uh, <laughs> have me going through what you went through. So right, I think speaking personally, probably the best way to get used to a new tool is to have a way to transition into it, to have a way of just like changing the way you're working a bit at a time just reading more and realizing oh what what if i tried changing one piece at around at a time as you go mm-hmm. or whenever you write something new just try something on for size see how it fits yeah the other approach might be to just to- is just total immersion where like you have no choice but to do everything in this one new tool well so basically the reason i i'm i'm like picking it up and trying to learn it is because i have an idea for a seven day roguelike that i want to make and my idea requires 3d which game maker can do but is not really the best option for i've always i've always felt like doing anything in 3d in game maker is kind of really like petting a cat the wrong way <laughs> so i i want to learn like a tool that is more suited and and built from the ground up for working in 3d and that sort of thing yeah and so i'm trying i'm just trying to kind of familiarize myself with it enough before seven day roguelike rolls around that once the jam starts i can actually like get some game dev done and i'll st- i'm still going to be learning during that time i'm sure but i kind of just want to get like all the basic stuff out of the way and understand you know the structure of it yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. I've I've done game jams where I spent the whole time like fighting to use a tool for the first time, and it's they're super. Mm-hmm. It's super demoralizing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are you ready for another topic? Yeah, yeah. I'm down. My topic is I confused Daniel Day Lewis with Lou Diamond Phillips for years, thinking they were the same person. I'm not sure why, but my hypothesis is that it's because they have both have three names, and they both have that Lou sound in there. That's the. It's really the whole thought. Like I, <laughs> it's it, this is about how my brain conflated these two distinct concepts, i.e., people, and in my mind they became the same person. And like I don't think they even look similar. They're not the same race. But like I remember, like when Daniel Day Lewis was getting these these really rich textured roles in like uh, Gangs of New York or or. Uh, What's the other one that comes to like, – there will be blood. Uh, there will be blood, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking like, man, Lou Diamond Phillips really, really kicking ass. That, that guy who played the, the cop in that shitty drama I watched in the 90s is really moving up in the world. Congrats. Not the same guy though. I always get Willem Dafoe and Kevin Bacon mixed up. Their <laughs> names aren't the same, but they look like the same person to me. Yeah, they, they, I, could, I could see it. They kind of have a similar face. I think I said that to someone once and they got really mad at me because <laughs> they, like, they were like, Kevin Bacon is so much more attractive than Willem Dafoe. And I was like, they look, this, they, they've they got the same sort of thing going on as far as I can tell. Willem Dafoe has a kind of a rubbery face that, that Kevin Bacon does not. So I could mm. see that too. It's, it's like his face is made of silly putty. You just want to stretch it. <laughs> I know I've had the name mix up thing before too. But I can't think of any specific instances. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's happened. I, I I'm trying to remember if I've talked about this on the show before. Um, but I uh, for years I also confused um, Depeche Mode with Tears for Fears. Oh, I can see that. I I finally found out 
I know why this is. It's because when I was a kid, my mom had a mixtape that had both bands on it. <laughs> I just was like, oh yeah, these two are this. This is the same band, and they and they are kind of similar. Yeah, they, I feel like they both occupy like a similar space in my in my brain. I I once had the impression, and I don't even know how this happened to me. But it was the 90s, and I thought that Lip Biscuit was a song by Blink-182. <laughs> None of that makes any sense. I don't even know how that thought would have happened, but it did. I feel like Limp Biscuit is that like a, is that like a penis joke? Is that what that is? is? I don't, I don't know. It Limp is. Limp Biscuit Edim Online. It's a reference so crude, I don't even feel like dignifying it with an explanation. Oh, but you know what it is. Do you know? Yeah. Oh. Okay. I don't know. I feel like if I explain it, they've won. I, I mean, I understand. I, I I understand the reluctance to. Oh, here we go. T I L on Reddit dot com. Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you what this is. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna put this in the show notes, but I'm not going to say it on the show. Yeah. Boy. Well, now I'm curious. It, it just it just feels like there's a. It's like a joke embedded in their name that once you learn what it is, that's uh, that's how they get you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, do we know that this is this was the name before they named the band that, or did it become this after the band, like named after the band? This is probably pretty bad radio for those who don't have the definition. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Esper, use your best judgment. There's an episode of Venture Brothers where uh, Rusty Venture finds out that his name is synonymous with some kind of sexual act, and he spends the entire episode trying to figure out what his name is to other people uh-huh. who are referring to this sexual act. And I don't think it's ever decided upon, but I just, that that's, that's something that lives in my head that I think of every once in a while. This guy yeah. desperately going around trying to figure out what insult his yeah, name your, is. Your parents named you after a sex act. Thank, thanks guys. Right. <laughs> I bet you could make a pretty good bot for uh, like machine predicting sex acts name nicknames like a blanky blank of some kind predicting or generating 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 okay. i guess i get why not both yeah <laughs> it's the prediction comes through and you actually name your kid that <laughs> the prophecy has been fulfilled yeah are we ready for another topic i think we are yeah uh for this topic we're going to be reading sweater weather a love song to language by sharon bryan uh, tyreek this was your suggestion would you like to read it Sure. Yeah. I have this book of poems and I was just kind of looking through it for stuff for this. Uh, This poem kind of stood out to me, so I don't know anything else about it than that. All right. Never better. Mad as a hatter. Right as rain. Might and main. Hanky panky hot toddy. Hoity toity cold shoulder. Bold over. Rolling in clover. Low blow. No soap. Hope. Against hope. Pay the piper. Liar, liar, pants on fire, high and dry, shoe fly pie, fiddle faddle, fit as a fiddle, sultan of swat, muskrat ramble, fat and sassy, flim flam, happy as a clam, cat's pajamas, bee's knees, peas in a pod, pleased as punch, pretty as a picture, nothing much, lift the latch, double dutch, helter skelter, hurdy gurdy, early bird, feathered friend, dumb cluck, buck up, shilly shally, willy nilly, roly poly, Holy moly! Loose lips sink ships. Spitting image, nip in the air, hail and hearty, part and parcel. Upsy daisy, lazy days, maybe baby up to snuff. Flibberty gibbet, honky tonk, spick and span, handyman, cool as a cucumber, blue moon. High as a kite, night and noon, love me or leave me, seventh heaven, up and about, over and out. You know how there's a Tom Lehrer song that's just a list of all the elements? To the tune of Modern Major General. <laughs> I don't, but I like that. I, I feel like this is the same sort of thing, except it's a list of a bunch of phrases that the author likes. Yeah. yeah. It's got a bounce to yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of phrasing it. I think that bounce came from Tyreek. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of it. At some point, there was some musical movement to like make melodies so dissonant and weird that you kind of dissociate from the usual impression of what music sounds like and hear the notes just kind of on their own merit i think that that kind of reminds me of this like i don't think it's supposed to mean anything 
semantically. It's just a your your tongue's just uh, having a party. Yeah, tongue party. Yeah. It's a tongue party in my mouth. It's funny hmm. you say the bounce came from me. I feel like I was just reading it the way it wanted to be read. Like all these words are just they're playful words. They're all very playful sort of sort of phrases and sent and you know uh, uh, little yeah. yeah phrases. That's fair. Yeah, and, but it's it's not just nonsense. They're they're phrases. Like you could have written like bop a dope dope blop dope blop a dope blop a dope deep dop deep. But I, I think the fact that they're actually like collections of phrases that you have some recognition of is part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that. Are there any of these that you've never heard before? A good number of them have been like I would say a half or more of the poems we've done. I I did not know. I mean, oh the phrases, the phrases, yeah, oh the phrases that I haven't didn't know. Let me let me go over it again because I wasn't listening for that. <laughs> Some of these are phrases you don't hear too much, and it's it's a nice reminder that they exist, like part and parcel. Yeah, it has yeah. a nice kind of click to it. I've always I've always liked part and parcel. So I don't know Sultan of Swat. I don't know that one either. I don't know the one that's or just the word hope. Ramble. Muskrat ramble, yeah. That's uh, hope is combined with the next line, hope against hope. Oh, you're right. Oh, they shouldn't have put the line breaks in then. Oh, Sultan of Swat is a nickname for Babe Ruth. Oh, okay. I don't know dumb cluck. <laughs> that sounds like a real bad insult. Or or shilly shally. Yeah, it does. Or shilly shally. Some some of these sound kind of UK e. Yeah, the rest of them I've at least heard, even if I don't, even if I don't know what they mean. Right. I like the word flippity gibbet a lot. Flippity gibbet's fun. Pay the piper. Yeah. I, I wonder what would happen if we like plugged this into like uh, AI generate a generator and we started getting like made up phrases. <laughs> oh, I like that idea. Yeah. If they sound right, you could probably pay them off. Yeah. Loose lips buck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bees punch. And yeah. That's a fun idea. It's all lifty nifty, bright and shifty. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I wonder what it would sound like if you just gave it to like a generated voice to read. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's a lull. Are we ready for another topic? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think so. <laughs> Tariq, your topic is, I'm going to try to make a bar top arcade machine with unconventional controls, I think. Does anybody have any tips or suggestions or anything? Also, more generally, how about that meat space creativity? Anybody make anything that occupies real world space lately? I feel like over the past uh, probably couple years, uh, just had a building pressure from within, like a building creative urge to make something that that occupies real space. And I think I've decided that I want to make a little bar top arcade machine with unconventional controls. Yeah, it's been so long. Like everything I make nowadays is just almost exclusively like completely digital. Yeah. And doesn't exist in, in, you know, real, real physical matter in any way. And so I'm kind of eager to, like, make something that, that I can put my hands on and have, like, a an object at the end of it. What controls are you thinking when you think unconventional controls? Well, so basically, when I say un- unconventional, I basically just mean not typical joystick and buttons. And I okay. think so what I what I have in mind so far is uh, knob, because I like knobs. Like like one one that you can spin spin forever uh, in in either direction, but like one that has some weight to it, so you can like spin it and let go, and it'll keep spinning for a little bit. That sort of thing. Hmm. Oh yeah. And I also uh, want to figure out how to incorporate like a pitch wheel from a keyboard. Sure. Because I feel I've always hmm. liked the like feel of those tactile sort of yeah. feedback that you get from pushing it and and feeling it push against you as well. Yeah. So those are like the two things that I know for sure that I that I think I want to implement. Have you played Sprint or any of the Sprint series of arcade games? Like Super Sprint? No, I haven't. That doesn't sound familiar. Race it's a top-down racing game. So like it's a isometric racing game rendered with 2D sprites where like the the whole race track is visible on the screen at once in like kind of a mm. of a three-quarters view. Cars are driving around the racetrack. Um but the controls each of you has a steering wheel, but the steering wheel is a pretty heavy, free-spinning it, – it's attached to a knob like you were describing. The tactile feel of turning the car is you kind of throw the wheel in the direction you want it to go, and it spins until you catch it. Yeah. While it's spinning, your car is turning on the screen. And 
the the feel of throwing this wheel and catching it is so delightful that I just I just <laughs> wanted right. to I just wanted to like suggest this sort of thing like as an extension of the of the free spinning knob. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so I think I think that's that's kind of like where my brain is with like what I want to make this thing uh is just like I want it to feel good to interact with like just on a very fundamental level. Yeah. Like I think that's that's kind of like my primary like thought process. The other sort of input that I had been considering was maybe like switches but like lined up such that you can like flip them all at once or like very 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 quick succession. Yeah. I don't have a game to go with this yet. <laughs> right, right, right. I I feel like I can I can figure something out. I can out. think of some current arcade games that have some pretty unconventional controls. I mean, if you really think about it, Time Crisis has a pretty unconventional one, and that is a gun. Yeah, but that's I mean, like it, a whole. That's the whole. That is, uh, it's whole, a genre. Like, genre of arcade. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my experience with this is like I have a lot of a lot of people plugged into the pinball scene here in Seattle, um, which is a thing. In fact, there's several independent groups going around, but that's another thing. Um, and if you really think about it, like pinball is pretty unconventional. I like the the actual control that you use is a button that's pretty conventional but the fact that it controls a flipper where you have to hit a ball yeah the, the whole there's the, there's this rube goldberg device that you interact with inside of this enclosed yeah yeah there's some yeah. Box. very like very very limited control uh that some people can nonetheless get very good at there's also the plunger that you interact with once per ball yeah, that's actually really interesting. Like that's the pinball interface is so specific. Like two buttons that control flippers and then a plunger and like that that would be a really interesting interface for one game, but instead it's been used for thousands. Yeah. There, I mean, there's also the the hidden interface, the hidden control which is nudging the yeah, game itself. the game, yeah. Yeah, kind of part of the game, but you can tell they they make it a challenge. <laughs> yeah, they the designers design with it in mind, but they also like want to make sure you don't do it too much. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's kind of an awkward facet of pinball table design is because you have to like you have to learn how much nudging is too much nudging, and it's probably different for every table. Well, I mean, that's kind of the whole machine is there's there's something to learn on the table, and that's kind of the interesting part of it is that even if it's the same mass-produced game, every table has its own like very slight yeah differences, yeah, yeah. like how how worn out the flippers are. It's got character, or or just like whether whether a ramp goes in one particular way or like a few degrees off from it. Yeah. Or like yeah, how where, strong the, the flippers like are, wear and tear, and, like the micro changes in like oh, how yeah. they got repaired. Yeah, there's deliberate things you can do to change it. There's not deliberate things that happen to it. Yeah, I've seen people ask like, "Oh, who's like go to an arcade?" It's like, "Oh, is this the is this such an is this his machine or is this was the machine that was in that other arcade last month?" Oh wow, yeah. And huh, um, I know there is one person who actually built his own machine from the ground up. <laughs> a very simple one. That's that's very good. Uh, that's that's yeah, delightful to me. That's that's impressive. Yeah, I I live with someone who might have some advice about controls because like she's moonlit as a pinball uh, repair person before and knows a lot of the ins and outs about how it all all the electronics and mechanical parts work. Um, and we have a bunch of spare parts in our garage and a lot of like, uh, I, I, you know, I know where to go to shop for these parts. Now, these are all four machines that have already been designed and mass produced. These are not for like building a new rig. Right. Is there a pinball black market? Black market? I don't know. Uh, it just occurred to me for some reason. What, what would that, what would that be exactly? I don't know. You get, you get, you get banned parts that are too powerful. <laughs> 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 like i don't know uh uh super dense balls that 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 have resulted in injury <laughs> that make the game less fun <laughs> uh not that i'm aware of the challenge is getting it to work the way it's supposed to work i've i'm unfamiliar with any of any okay. black market techniques i feel like that would be a good like story thread for something as a kind of addendum to this, there's one house that we used to go to for a, like a, a, a yearly tournament by this guy who was an ex-NBN 
ex-NBA player who really, really loves pinball and really, really loves old arcade machines that he has numerous examples of. And off the top of my head, like these are all games from like the 40s and before. There's like this one game where it's a simulation of playing basketball, all completely mechanically controlled where you hit the ball. And it's like the current lineup of, I think it might be the Yankees, but you know, Babe Ruth's on there. Most of the games aren't that old. But there is one oh, – so, okay, off the top of my head, there's one where you're you're shooting cans with a gun. You point the gun, but it's – there's no, like, visual sensor. When you shoot it, there are, like, little, little mechanical things underneath the play field that pop the objects up physically when you aim the gun at them. There's one where the controller is that little, uh, that little like seesaw lever thing for going along the rails. Right. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. 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 Uh, I've seen uh, one like of those hand cart or what are they called? Yeah. No, I'm no, I can't. Pick. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Oh, Oh, actually. Oh, here's one. That's uh that's unconventional. This is like a, like an extinct um, branch. I think I mentioned this last time I was on topic Lords, but it's like a stink extinct branch of arcade bar games um where it's bowling with a shuffleboard uh panel you shoot a little puck down it and then it goes over hits these sensors and when it does the the pins hanging above pop down um oh, interesting but it's completely electromechanical to the point where there's there's it doesn't have the computing power to properly process uh, the scoring of spares and strikes. <laughs> There's a lot of really old games, a lot of like interesting uh, ideas for how to replicate certain things. Yeah. Getting back to just meat space creativity in general, I made a tweet like a week ago that was um, for a happy life, pick creative hobbies that don't scale. And <laughs> w- what I was getting at there is, okay, I'll just read the follow up tweet. If you write a pretty good song, listeners will inevitably compare it to the best music of the last millennium, which they could be listening to instead. But if you serve people a pretty good soup, they might remember having better soup, but that soup isn't right in front of them, is it? And my point being, like, if you have, like, a digital, like, digital hobbies are always going to be compared to, like, the thing that was best in the world that was made, even even the best thing in the world made today uh, in mm-hmm. that medium, because... That's what people have access to now is they could just they could just get the best song written yesterday. They could just uh, download that and listen to that instead of yours. But like if you knit somebody a pair of socks, like they can't get the best pair of socks made in the world. They just have your socks and they're going to be happy. <laughs> because you've burned all their other socks. Right. <laughs> they're going to be probably pretty happy that you gave them a pair of socks. Like cool, new socks. Right. Maybe you could sell that soup on Etsy. <laughs> yes. I'm actually super into now um, – well, first of all, making art that doesn't monetize. Like I am, I'm so over making money with art. It's such a pain in the ass. <laughs> and instead, like making a game that, you know, you, you you'll take it to hype o'clock, and everybody at hype o'clock will play it for five minutes. It's like cool game, and then that's it. You, that's all that ever gets played. That's actually awesome. Yeah, sounds like you're searching for something non-functional, Jim, or not not non-fungible. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> right, except it's, except not bullshit. Hmm. NBT <laughs> non-bullshit token. Non-functional bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what I had I've been having fun with a bit is uh, tabletop games are kind of like that. If you do a kind of like one that's that has a kind of creative experience to it, because yeah, um, absolutely. Like that's that doesn't scale past like six people. Like um, I can tell the people that I was DMing for last night. Um, you're the only ones who made a version of this game where you sever an enemy's leg and then like use it as a token to intimidate people with, even without telling them the context. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not that it's worked, but you're the only group who's done that and probably will ever do that here. So that's that's your non-fungible game experience. Yeah, yeah. I love uh, tabletop as an example of non-scalable games. Uh, my, my, lately, my hobby, um, my meat space hobby has been cooking. And, you know, it's, it's just really, really fun to, to, to throw all the, all the flavors together and see what comes out. Yeah, that's cool. And you also the bonus you also get to eat it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's delicious. 
and I get to feed my family, which, feel, which feels good. Like it feels yeah. like I'm accomplishing something important. That is important. <laughs> yeah, that's red. Do you, I, I'm curious what you mean when you say non-scalable, though. Like I'm not I'm not entirely sure I'm fully understanding. Yeah. So what I mean by scalable is like if you make a video game like that can be played on one piece of hardware that you have in your room, that doesn't scale. That's just one. It's one game. But if you make a video game that can be played on a Windows PC that can be played on millions of computers, that's what I mean by scaling. It scales up to the number, like a high number of users. Uh, I see, I see. Hmm. Anything that can be freely copied over the internet and experienced by millions of people, that that that's what I mean by scaling in this context. Hmm. Well, my secret is I, I made algorithms that uh, people certainly could scale, but nobody yet has cared enough or known about it to actually do that. <laughs> That's my that's my unique experience I give to my students. There is a a game called Gibbub's Adventure by John Wally, which I really love, and it's it's in the vein of Sakeless. If you've played Sakeless, it's a lot like it, honestly, it's kind of like a ripoff of Sakeless, but it's just it's a game where you explore this this like MS Paint world, collecting little baubles and listening to to piano music, and it's just a delightful experience where you're you're wandering the meadows and oh, I'll go into this cave and see what's in there. I don't remember actually the, what form the, the secrets took, but there were these secret objects that weren't the normal collectible. And there were just a few of them scattered around the world really well hidden. And I don't think anybody ever figured out what they were for, because nobody mm-hmm. played this game. And nobody caring enough about your, your secrets to ever figure out what they mean is a great way to make your game be uh, mysterious. <laughs> hey, I'll totally play your game. I'll totally play the game you bring to Hype O'Clock. <laughs> Rad. You know, I'm just thinking now. You got me. You got me. My brain going down. Uh, do, do you want to? Do you want to expose the thoughts, or are you ready to move on to the next topic? I'm ready. I think I'm ready to move on. I got. I got to simmer on this for a bit. Alexander, your topic is Ithquil, the inscrutable conlang that was co-opted by Russian Buddhist cults. This is basically just a story that just struck me as so surreal. It just feels like it's from some parallel universe. It's a There's a story in the New Yorker article called Utopian for Beginners. If you search Ithquil, you'll probably find it. Just the, the story of the, the amateur, complete amateur fan of linguistics who made his own completely unusable language as a a work of design just it's something made to be extremely logical specific and crunchy really just dense with phonemic uh or it's just semantic meaning in its phonemes that it you wouldn't expect anyone to actually use or speak in practice our brains are just not wired that way and the the written script is even weirder it is just dense like character symbols where every bit of it means something um but it's not made to be readable and that's that's just the start of it i mean there's a lot of like weird conlangs out there um i really enjoyed the uh the book uh the land of invented languages which kind of goes through all the various like attempts through all the ages of doing this and the generally bizarre people that this this uh craft attracts what ended up happening with Ithquil is that um, there's this one idiosyncratic oblast of Russia. It's the only one that's majority Buddhist. And um, there was this like super nationalistic paramilitary group that got really into it because they they viewed it as like a way to sharpen your mind and clear it and like make yourself a more perfect being by absorbing this language. So he had this completely foreign kind of scary fan club <laughs> that went out to him and he just like had to tell his boss at the DMV like, yeah, I made a language and also some Russians want to talk to me about it. Can I get the weekend off? <laughs> anyway, it's just a it's just a wild story that this is a thing that happened. Yeah, I love that. So this was like he was just a normal person that made this weird language? Well, he wasn't a normal person because he made this weird language. Like, this guy is a clearly <laughs> very... He's a very intelligent person with an extreme attraction to this project. Um, but, like, he's, he's a... Like, otherwise, he leads a very humble life. Right. So, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm like, saying, like, okay, he, he 
this isn't like a project he he endeavored upon out of some sense of like i don't know like like god's hand guiding him and i am the messiah for you know this is the language that has been delivered to me through visions and there was you know, there's a of number of conlings that were made under that impression but he is not one of them now <laughs> okay 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 yeah Huh. It's like yeah. making a sculpture, like it's making a work. It's taking something that's supposed to be functional and making something totally non-functional out of it because you want to see if what that thing would be. <laughs> so wait, why why did these Buddhist cultists like this language? I, I don't know if they were Buddhist, but they were from like the fact that there's like this one area in Russia that's majority Buddhist that apparently elected a governor who was believed he was abducted by aliens and told that chess is from space it's it's just idiosyncratic place and yeah there's some paramilitaristic i think he was a convicted terrorist um who had a lot of followers and part of like his doctrine is that this learning this language unlocks your minds and gives you like mental powers you didn't have before like maybe just because it's so hard to do well, it's it's so logical and perfect. Oh, is that what that was? Okay, I thought it was. Yeah, I thought that made it difficult. No. Yeah, it's intriguing to think of the of looking at a language and thinking like, well, how would you make something that doesn't have flaws that is totally logical and everything is organized, and then realize that tons of people have had this idea and it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so that's 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 actually interesting. In my game, Catacomb Kids, I've tried conlanging for the world a, f a couple times and it always falls apart because i'm bad at it uh but one of the languages like the language that that is magic in the world is supposed to be that sort of thing like in lore it's supposed to be the sort of like hyper hyper logical sort of like perfect language that was created by an all-knowing god and his uh like perfect city and that sort of thing but i don't think I will ever attempt to conlang that because I I'm not a, an all-knowing god <laughs> and I would fail at it. Uh, so I think I'm just gonna keep that in the lore and not expound upon it. But there are like other languages that have been derived from it, and so I think yeah, I have to exactly. So the the next generation is gonna creep in. You know, they're gonna yeah. corrupt it in some way. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, briefly caught my attention is the, the like the the first wave of this whole conlang idea were like enlightenment thinkers with that basically that idea and one of them was uh i guess john wilkins language well i don't know if it had a formal name essay towards a real character in a philosophical language where he tried to he basically make a dewey decimal system for words the syllables and letters it uses tells you like how it what it is and how it's categorized uh, the problem is, like the actual Dewey Decimal System, it's very, like, culturally centric on 17th century England. Like, there's a lot about God, and there's a lot about, like, maritime concerns in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was – I wanted to try and, like, look up if, if there was a dictionary or if you could look up words through this. But the only thing I was able to find was a – Jorge Luis Borges wrote an essay making fun of it. And he's a much more famous <laughs> writer, so that's what we got. All right, I can't remember if this is exactly what you said, but I, I believe that you said that many people have created conlangs in an attempt to become closer to God or to talk to God or something like that. Well, first it made me think of Temple OS, which was an OS created to talk to God. <laughs> but then, like, I just feel like for huge swaths of humanity's existence, or at least Western culture, all art has kind of had to filter through through the church just because that was the way you legitimized it. If you want to paint, well, you have to pay, have to paint something about God because that's what you do. That's what art is. I was actually thinking there was a kind of a wave in the 60s and 70s where it was more like people wanted to make language, more like the kind of new age talk to alien gods than talk to the, the OG Christian god. So there, there was a little bit of that. I would imagine that that's a bit of a mischaracterization because I think a lot of these people were legitimately wanting to talk to God. I, I think a lot of it was uh, very earnest. Like one example was Hildegard van uh, Bingen, who I don't know, did she make it conlang or... Yeah, she made some kind of predecessors of a conlang and also just a lot of music and art. And she legitimately believed that these were divine visions. Interesting. 
Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true of the Temple OS guy as well. Yeah. There were a lot of like different pagan religions in Europe that we know very little about because none of it was written down because the people that were interested in writing things down were precisely the missionaries, the pers- the people least interested in writing about anything accurate about foreign paganism. Right, right. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, Tyreek, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me in places... At 4-Bit Friday, that's my name, all spelled out with words. The 4 is the number 4, but it's spelled out like the word 4. And I'm also Froar, Froar, F-R-R-O-R, on Bandcamp. You, you, you've made a domain name to, to fix that name. Error with an F, dot com. There you go. Uh, and Alexander, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, probably the easiest way is on the Topic Lords Discord, which I will try to make an effort to read if you do so. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!